Welcome to worship at Salem Alliance Church. Let's join Barbara Fletcher, Associate Pastor, as she begins. As I have reflected on the passage for this week's message, it's caused me to think about things that are valuable to me or maybe valuable to you, but not necessarily valuable to somebody else. And uh, this came home to me just last weekend. I was uh, babysitting three of my uh, grandchildren, ages seven, five, and five, as their mom and dad were out of town on a very well-deserved uh, little bit of a break. And so on Sunday afternoon, I drove up to the Portland Zoo with the kids, and we spent several hours at the Portland Zoo with bears and lions and giraffes and all that you do at a zoo. And I find the Portland Zoo a little bit challenging because the paths are windy, and I usually have a, a zoo map with me to figure out exactly where I am or try to figure it out. And uh, at one point during our time at the zoo, we went to the petting zoo. And I'm used to a petting zoo having little tiny animals, but this one this time had goats that were up to my waist. And we were instructed as we walked into the petting zoo, um, just pet their backs or pet their sides and don't give them anything to eat. Okay, we can do that. And so we go on in, and this very large goat, we're petting his sides, and, and he reaches into the pocket of my coat, sticks his nose in, and he comes out with my zoo map, which was all folded up. He has it in his mouth. He proceeds to shake it and open it, and he literally ate it from one corner to the other. And I thought, whoa, there goes my map. And I wasn't even supposed to feed the goats. Uh, But apparently I did. I had no idea they loved paper that much. I was glad I didn't have a $20 bill in my pocket or something. (laughs) Uh, I was thinking as well on something that I didn't value but somebody else did was uh, when I'd been married maybe eight years or so and I I tend to be a cleanie and so I was going through closets and weeding things out that we don't wear anymore and I was in my husband's closet and among other things I weeded out a leather motorcycle jacket that he'd had in high school and I hadn't seen on him in ever actually in the eight years plus that I had known him and so I just well this isn't important and I put it in the pile and yeah it was important (laughs) and uh, a few months later where's my jacket Um, at the Goodwill maybe (laughs) probably gone by now so I learned what was valuable to my husband at that moment learned a, a good lesson don't clean out the closet without permission made me think about uh, my mother's jewelry, which after she passed away, I was given some of it. I was just 28 when she passed away. And that jewelry is incredibly important to me. Uh, But some thieves broke into our home and stole it uh, once. And it was worth money to them, but it was worth a lot more to me. And so I think about a map that a goat didn't value. Um, I think about a leather coat that I didn't value. I think about jewelry that some thieves didn't value in the way that it should have been valued. And I look at this passage and I see a woman who wasn't valued the way she should have been valued. In fact, we could literally call her a throwaway woman because that's the way she was perceived by everybody in the scene that we'll consider except for Jesus. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the, John, the fourth gospel, uh, chapter 8, or grab a pew Bible in front of you and turn to page uh, 1059. 
And I wonder if you would please stand with me in honor of the reading of the word of God. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Since the reading of the word of God, you may be seated. As we look at this passage, I want to talk about three aspects of it. First, the religious leaders and their lives. Secondly, the uh, standoff, if you will, the whole showdown that happened between Jesus and these religious leaders. And then lastly, a good hard look at this throwaway woman. These religious leaders, they were consistently confused, perplexed, outraged by Jesus. They went from being curious about him to being absolutely furious at him. And I think I can best illustrate that for you by bringing up a few passages of scripture. Uh, There were many, many, many that could be chosen um, in the four gospels where Jesus and these religious leaders are at odds. But one of them occurs in Luke chapter 11. And in that chapter, we have Jesus having dinner at the home of a Pharisee, and a bunch of other religious leaders are all gathered around at the same meal. And they, as usual, are scrutinizing his every action and his every word. And Jesus apparently did not wash his hands according to the ceremonial rules. And so these rule-minded men who always put rules over people immediately said, you didn't follow the rules. And Jesus very disgusted with them, says, you always put rules over people, in a sense. You care more about your rules and burdening people with this rule and that rule and add a rule today and five more tomorrow. You care more about what's on the outside than what's on the inside. And at the end of that encounter, this is the attitude of these religious leaders. When Jesus left, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Then let me take you to something that happens in Mark chapter 3. In this scene, we have a Sabbath, a Sunday, if you will, a holy day. That was incredibly important to the religious leaders and to the Jews in general. And over the years, this is the area where they had added more and more and more and more and more laws. 
And they said, so on the Sabbath, you can't work. Therefore, you can't even carry a fig. It's just this tiny little piece of fruit. That's too heavy. If you're writing, you make me write one or two letters, like A, B, but no more, because that's work on the Sabbath. In fact, if your house catches on fire on the Sabbath, just walk out and leave everything in it, because it's work to carry things. And you cannot do that on the Sabbath. And they had all these man-made rules that had been added to what God's command was, was keep the Sabbath holy. But they had added rule after burdensome rule after burdensome rule to it. And so on this particular Sabbath in Mark chapter 3, uh, they're scrutinizing Jesus who is about to heal a man with a withered uh, hand. And we find this is what happened Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Furious that he had worked on the Sabbath by healing a man's hand. The bottom line is that these religious leaders were completely threatened by Jesus. They were threatened by the fact that he attracted such crowds because he was such a charismatic, powerful, truth-telling teacher. They were threatened by the way he wasn't following all of their little rules. They were threatened by their, their jobs, in fact, felt threatened to them. Their leadership felt threatened to them, and they came out fighting. And so they set up this showdown that we just read in John chapter 8. The setting is the temple, the temple mount in Jerusalem. Beautiful, beautiful temple. And it's in the morning and Jesus went to that temple to teach as he often did. And it's important to understand that it was even risky for him to be in the temple that day because uh, just the day before when he had been teaching there, uh, he said in the midst of his teaching to the religious leaders, why are you trying to kill me? He was keenly aware that they were looking for every possible way to kill him. So there's risk being around people like that. But Jesus goes and he starts teaching and All of the people sit down around him, compelled by his teaching. But suddenly, pushing through the crowd, come some more of these religious leaders, and with them is a woman they have just caught in the act of adultery, and they stand her disheveled in front of Jesus. Jesus! Moses' law said we should stone a woman like this. What do you think we should do? Well, the crowd was listening because they're all, frankly, Jews. That's who followed Jesus at that time. The the law of Moses, the true laws, were very important to them, and this was one of them. So it was really important to them to listen up. What's Jesus going to say to this? The Roman soldiers were there listening because it certainly mattered to them. The Jews had been forbidden by the Romans from executing anybody according to their Mosaic law. And so in a very real sense, they've got Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Because if Jesus says, oh, no, we're not going to stone her, um, he disenfranchises or disappoints all the Jews that are listening. But if he says, stone her, the Roman soldiers are right there ready to take care of him. So which will it be, Moses or Rome? And in the brilliance of Jesus... It is neither. And the trap that these religious leaders set 
doesn't work. Because Jesus leans down and he starts writing in the dusty dirt of Jerusalem there by the temple. And we're not told what he writes. I wish we were. I had a few conversations this week with Brian Candelo, our pastor of of, uh, high school ministries, about what do you think he wrote? Brian said, I think he may have written the names of some women they'd been involved with. That's an interesting thought. I said, maybe he wrote the name of the man that she was, frankly, in bed with. Because according to the Jewish law, he should have been brought in as well, but um, he hadn't been. Maybe he wrote down some lies that they routinely told or some more examples of their tremendous hypocrisy of saying one thing and living out another. Uh, We don't really know what Jesus wrote. But we do know this. We do know that suddenly these very arrogant, these very self-righteous religious leaders uh, were keenly aware of their sin. And so it is when Jesus said to them, if any one of you is without sin, you feel free to cast the first stone. A bold move. But none of them pick up a stone. They have been very well, made very well aware of the sin of their lives. And they start walking away, the oldest first. It's a fascinating scene to me at so many levels, but one of the reasons it's fascinating is that when, when Jesus uh, told them, let the you who is without sin cast the first stone, in a sense, he was taking away a mob mentality. Because normally it would be a mob. Let's just all pick up stones and let's all throw them. But here he says, you want to execute this woman? You lead the way. You lead the way. And so they all leave. And there's only one person left with Jesus, and it's the throwaway woman. You realize she didn't even need to be there. These religious leaders could have just posed a a hypothetical question to Jesus and said, uh, you know, what if we were to catch a woman in adultery? Do you think we should stone her? But it was not a what if to them. It was a real life situation and they had drugged this poor woman disheveled humiliated mortified and terrified in front of a crowd up on the temple mount she was simply throwaway goods to them she was a means to an end to get rid of Jesus I want to stop and talk a minute about shame in that culture Uh, Because shame is a real issue in the Middle East culture still today. And it certainly was in those days. It would not be unheard of at all if a woman were caught in adultery for members of her own family to kill her. Because a family's honor was tied into the moral behavior of the women of the family. And this still happens. It still happens to women in the Middle East. You've seen it and I've seen it among the Taliban in Afghanistan. In Iran, in an outlying village outside of Baghdad someplace, 
there's a woman by the name of Soraya, and there's even been a movie uh, made about Soraya M., who on August 15, 1986, was stoned to death, not because she was guilty of adultery, but because her husband accused her of adultery. This 35-year-old woman, the mother of seven children, he didn't want her anymore. He wanted another wife. And in order to protect the dowry and all the issues involved in that, his way to get rid of her was to accuse her of adultery and have her stoned. It's a real thing. I was chatting with Betty Howard, who has been a missionary from our congregation going out to the Middle East, was a missionary there for decades. I said, Betty, in all your years of ministry, did you ever hear about one of these honor-type killings? And she said, oh, yeah. She said, I was, in fact, ministering to and mentoring a young woman, a Jordanian woman who worked at the British consulate there in Amman. And one day when she came for a regular meeting, she told me about how her good friend had been murdered by that friend's brother because the family had said she had been immoral. And for the honor of the family, she had to be killed. And this young woman that Betty was mentoring said to her that her own brother had said to her, if you ever act immorally like your friend did, I will personally kill you. Honor killings, protecting the honor of the family in a shame-based culture. Just last week in Arizona, an Iraqi American by the name of Fala Amaliki was convicted of an honor killing of his own daughter here in America, a 20-year-old girl, because he did not approve of her relationship with another young Iraqi man And she refused to marry the man that her dad wanted her to marry. Honor killings. Honor killings. And I tell you all of these horrible stories to have you understand that as this woman stood there in front of Jesus and all of these men, she would be completely powerless and utterly terrified. Because you see, even if her family had been there, they would not have defended her. So here she stood, humiliated, mortified, terrified, and only Jesus saw her differently from anybody else. Only Jesus protected her. Only Jesus cared about her. Only Jesus had compassion for her. To Jesus, her sin did not diminish her value as a person. It did not diminish her value as a person. In fact, we could even say that he risked his life to save her life. And so he turns to her and he says, so where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. And then he says, so then neither do I condemn you. For it is as the book of Romans tells us, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation for those who follow Christ Jesus. And so he says to her, I believe in you in essence, go and sin no more. (laughs) 
And in doing that, Jesus upholds the moral code of the Old Testament. Morality, sexual morality matters tremendously to the living God. But he takes away the penalty of death because he would carry it himself on the cross and pay the penalty for this woman and for you and for me, for all of our sins as well. Jesus believed in her. He believed she could change, and that woman must have been completely dumbfounded by this experience. It's very probable that no one had ever come to her defense before. No one had ever believed in her before. No one had ever truly valued her before. Let me step away from that for a minute and talk about a horse. A horse that was expected to be a really good horse, but turns out that he's smaller than he should be. Turns out that he has an uneven gait. Turns out that he suffers various injuries. And various people said, in fact, everybody said, you need to just get rid of him. He's a throwaway horse. He'll never race. But one man believed in him. And said, no, he is a great racehorse. He's going to be a great racehorse. And his name was Seabiscuit. And as you know, if you've seen the movie or read the book, Seabiscuit went on to become one of the greatest racehorses of all time. And it was during the Depression era. And he won over 33 races and a whole ton of money. And people would listen on their radios to every single race that he ran because he encouraged them in a dark season in this country. And in fact, as you read about Seabiscuit, you find that people call him a symbol of hope to a people locked in a deep economic depression. A symbol of hope. It seems to me that as we look at this woman caught in adultery, she should well be a symbol of hope for us. Jesus believes in you and in me like he believed in her. He wants to rescue us from any poor self-image or sense of failure that we experience in our lives or any pattern of sin that has ensnared us. Yes, he should, we should see her as a symbol of hope for ourselves. But I think we should also see Jesus' experience with her as a challenge. A challenge to look at people differently. To look at people through the eyes of Christ. I mean, I think you and I would never say, oh, that's a throwaway person. We probably wouldn't be so crass as to say that. But I would suggest that there are people that we devalue. The homeless. Perhaps the mentally ill. Perhaps the elderly. Maybe even young children not giving them the respect and honor that they're due. Or maybe it's people with physical challenges that we devalue. There are plenty of people around us um, that we devalue. And yet God has called us to see them through the eyes of Christ. I was impacted by a book I've been rereading by Henry Nouwen called The Name of Jesus. This is what he says. 
The mystery of God's plan is that we have been chosen to make our own limited and very conditional love the gateway for the unlimited and unconditional love of God. You and I have been chosen to love people as Jesus would with an unconditional and unlimited love, whether it's a patient in an office or a client in an office or whether it's somebody on the street or whether it's somebody in our home. God has called us to love them with the unlimited and unconditional love of Christ. May Jesus open our eyes to see people as he does. And may he open our eyes to see ourselves as he does as well. Shall we pray? Father, how we thank you that you value us more than we can get a hold of. And we declare to you we don't feel worthy of it many, 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 many days. But we thank you that you love us, that you value us, that you believe in us. And we ask that you would help us to receive that and that you would help us to see others through the very eyes of Christ. To love them as you would love them. To care for them as you would care for them. We need your help. And we ask for it in the name of Christ. You've been listening to Barbara Fletcher, Associate Pastor at Salem Alliance Church. If you've enjoyed this message, we'd love for you to be our guest at our worship service on our main campus at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem. Worship services are Saturday at 5 and 6.30 p.m. and again on Sunday at 8, 9.30 and 11 a.m. If you'd like to receive a free Bible and more information on how to become a Christ follower, feel free to call our office at 503-581-2129. We'd love to know how we can serve you. And once again, that's Salem Alliance Church at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem.